Welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, episode 24, on Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, issues 19 and 75. Has this been a light diversion, Sophie? It has been, and it's been quite nice. Are you... And are you bracing yourself for next month when we get right back into Shakespeare with King John? The one that feels like someone was just making up a name and couldn't be bothered. Yeah, no. Um, although I have um, already got it on um, Audible. And yeah, no, I've, I've, what, I've re- listened to it once already and i'm actually kind of looking forward to the episode probably that's the best you can say about king john i mean it is pretty good but you know that's not what this uh, episode is about this is about something a bit more hip a bit more modern a bit more up to date with the 1990s man <laughs> the 1990s ah uh... Don't you think we're being up to the minute about this comic book series about this white-faced goth? Yeah, you're not wrong. The, yeah, Dream is definitely a, a white-faced goth. This symbol of immortal, eternal imagination that just so happens to look like a 1990s idea of a cool guy. Though, frankly, Neil Gaiman's, like... To be honest, I think Neil Gaiman decided, eh, it's me, but with weirder hair and a weirder face. And you know what? I bet I would have been Shakespeare's friend. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) But I suppose, for those of you who don't know, what we are doing this month is Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, a very famous, very popular comic book series where the main character is a guy called Dream, or I think his name is also Morpheus. It's been a while since I read the full thing, but his name, he is the god of dreams, or a bit more than the god of dreams. An eternal principle of the universe, which deals with dreams and human creativity in general. And the reason why we are doing this work this week is because in two of the issues of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, Shakespeare is a central character. Because within the narrative of The Sandman, it turns out that the reason why Shakespeare was so clever is because Dream gave him a deal. He said, Will, I will let you have access to the world of the dreams. I will let you have access to all the stories in the world so long as you write two plays for me. And those two plays were A Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest. And that is what these two issues we are looking at right now revolve around. Issue 19, based around The Midsummer Night's Dream. And issue 75, based around The Tempest. Just to note up front, issue 75 is the very last issue of The Sandman. It takes place before, chronologically, the end of the Sandman series, so we will attempt not to spoil the ending of the comic book series. We might accidentally brush into it, but 
just keep in mind that we are going to try our best not to spoil it, but it is the last issue. Well, like, it's kind of hard to spoil it just because... Eh, it's fine. I think, like, both are kind of spoiler-free, oddly. I would That's argue... what happens when they're set 300 years before the main plot. Yeah, and issue 19 is arguably the more um, spoiler-dangerous one. But beyond that, eh, it's fine. You'll learn that spoilers, William Shakespeare's child dies. <laughs> Spoilers, William Shakespeare retires. And then dies practically immediately. Yes. But Sophie, what is your relationship to Neil Gaiman's The Sandman? Uh, I've read it, read them all through. Um, there were issues available at um, my local library. And after... Yeah, as a kid, I read a lot. Um but I got a little lazy. So the older I got, the more interested in comics I became. Um, and then I went a little like, mm, I don't read comics. I read um, visual novels. And of course, one of the uh, top tier, arguably the-, the I think evil. you mean graphic novels. Visual novels are something quite different. Oh no, you're right. Whoops. <laughs> you can research that. It's nothing too dangerous. Um, Anyway. That is top qualities, kid trying to be pretentious, but even getting that wrong. <laughs> now, now I read visual novels. <laughs> oh no! But yeah, um, went for graphic novels instead. Um, uh, and yeah, and then of course now Netflix has um, Neil Gaiman's uh, The Sandman season one available, um, and season two is coming out soon. I think. Didn't he have to get on Twitter to beg for a second season? A little bit, yeah. But that's a streaming business, baby. <laughs> now, my relationship to the Sandman is just like you, Sophie. Uh, as a kid, as a teenager, I read a lot of comic books. I have... And my school library had the complete set of The Sandman, and I remember reading it through multiple times. And I've, since graduating high school, I think I've read it through twice or three times more. I will note that this is a long series, nine volumes long, 75 issues. Towards the end of it, I start to skim it. So I'm not, it's not exactly clear in my mind the very ending of it. <laughs> I'd say this is the first time for this podcast, the first time I've actually read the final issue with anything approaching a respectful level of attention. <laughs> Do you think it deserves that, Sophie? I mean, I think it does. <laughs> I mean... I'm sorry, I've lost the question. Can you repeat that for me? Do you think that... Do you think that this series, or at least, the, do you think this series deserves a respectful level of attention? I mean, okay, um... Respectful level versus popular level, I feel, is very different. But then again, like, 
was it revolutionary for the time? It probably was. Um, and like Neil Gaiman is, you know, perfectly respected as a novelist, um, respected and, you know, lovely enough to have, um, worked with Terry Pratchett for, um, you know, Good Omens, which has also been developed into a, you know, a very popular, um, TV series, not strictly speaking on Netflix. Um, and, and, um, this is such a lukewarm take. Um, I would argue most, uh, works, uh, most works of fiction and, um, produced media have deserve a modicum of respect just for being released whether they have whether they deserve that respect for content is another thing entirely especially if they peddle right-wing bullshit um i think yeah i think it is a work that deserves respect in a very similar way that mouse um deserves respect um not for the content because the contents are very different um but Mouse revolutionized the way graphic novels are even made at all. It was, it's very design oriented. Um, the way that the pages are made and mouse are very architectural almost, as opposed to um, Neil Gaiman's one, which is full of fancy and whimsy and darkness. Um, which I remember that uh, Grant Morrison, another one of the British Invasion School of American writers of comic books, he referred to this you know, era Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, Grant Morrison style of writing as the frilled cuff school of comic book writing. <laughs> Interesting. Um... <laughs> That's very cute. That is a cute description. But yeah, um, I think um, Neil Gaiman's um, comic deserves respect in that he was like, hey, Let's turn dreaminess into a little bit of darkness because nightmares exist. And um, let's just keep building on a property, which also has connections to the Marvel. Was it the Marvel or DC? DC. Okay, DC. Um, I had to jump on you there, Sophie, just <laughs> in case anyone else wanted to jump on you. <laughs> fair, fair. Um I don't understand why people are so obsessed with um, IP, but anyway, um, you know. I mean, as time went on, the the series gradually cut whatever small links it had to the main DC universe. Yeah, um, it's so funny, but anyway, that the, there was that connection, and he's like, "Oh, something that's connected to comics is actually super interesting." Like, there are facets that there are certain like points of interest that make it worthy of like further study for people who are interested in that but does it immediately by default res deserve respect yeah it's that it it as a work it feels like that kind of literary thing where it's like let me show you just how literary i can be i'm going to make all the illusions not just some of the illusions I'm going to make all of the allusions to world culture. This is going to be a story about stories, you know, man. I, I, this makes it sound like I am disparaging the comic. I think it's actually fairly good. <laughs> yeah. 
like um in terms of just do I enjoy reading it? Yes, I enjoy reading it. But having returned to it this time, having returned to it this time, putting more concentration into actually reading it rather than treating it as something that I am plowing my way through just to finish it once again. I will say that it is... I did enjoy it more. I found it to have a bit more meaning in it this time. I mean, one of the reasons why I... This is one of the problems I find with, you know, long works like uh, The Sandman. And one of the reasons why I do a podcast about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare's plays are by definition short. He's, they have to be completed within three hours or so. So, you know, you can pour your attention into them and still have time left in your day. A 75-issue comic book series, it's just I don't have enough time to pay attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that. <laughs> but shall we stop pussyfooting around and dive straight into Sandman issue 19, A Midsummer Night's Dream? <laughs> Sandman Issue 19, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Each of these issues is going to be set around one of Shakespeare's famous plays. This one is based around A Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, the high concept of this is that you know how A Midsummer Night's Dream is about all these fairies, Oberon, Titania, Puck. Well, this story is about the Lord of Dreams saying... I want you to write a story about some fairies, and I want you to make the first performance of this play in front of a very special audience. And guess who that audience is? It is the fairies who are in the play, the real-life actual fairies who are in the play, who are a bit more intimidating than the little light-hearted creatures inside of the play. I will say that the, that is the central part of this story, and we can go into what goes on around that, because, yeah, let's just get, let's just get into it. That is the central concept of this, and the rest of the things that are interesting about this issue happen around this rather strong central concept. I think it actually, this did win, I think, like a World Fantasy Award, I think. And I think that central concept was enough to get it. I think, you know, Neil Gaiman probably gave himself a day off after he came up with that central concept for this. Don't you think, Sophie? Yeah, you know what? I think he was like, I did a good job. <laughs> Using the, those exact uh, intonations. And that exact New Zealand accent. Yes. <laughs> But any initial thoughts on this? Um, like, so in one of the panels, uh, William Shakespeare is like, it is the best that I have written to this date. And um, to which I said, you and I have very different tastes, Will. Um, and initially... Yes, having done this podcast, we know that he has done at least a few things. But Romeo and Juliet, for one, I think. Yeah, like at this point, you've you've done better works, but for me, um, 
like this comic um, just made me think, oh yeah, there are good lines, good profound lines about imagination and madness. Um, and the whole issue generally entices me to change my mind about my opinion of Midsummer Night's Dream. I still think it's a mean-spirited play, but um, the framing device is fascinating and just immensely satisfying. It's... I, to, I will say that let us uh, bring in part of the uh, running themes of these issues. The way that Neil Gaiman presents William Shakespeare... He, it is as a guy who has given a bit too much of himself to his art. In this one, William Shakespeare, the way that he makes this deal accidentally with the Lord of Dreams is that in a previous issue, he is having a beer with Christopher Marlowe and he says, oh, Christopher Marlowe, I wish I could write like you. I would give anything to write like you. Ah, and who overhears him? The Lord of Dreams and the Lord of Dream gives him access to the dreaming. But part of the devil's bargain here is that now William Shakespeare finds that he is always at a remove from his own life. He is always so concerned with creating art and using the world around him as material for his art that he no longer feels fully connected. This is more obvious in the second issue we're going to look at, The Tempest, that issue. But the idea is that even in that Tempest issue, he says... When my son died, a part of me inwardly smiled because I knew I now felt true sorrow about death and I would have something to write about. And in this issue as well, that there's that little joke where his, well, I say dark joke, where his son, Hamnit, says that, oh, my father cares more about his plays and his stories than me. My sister or my mother says that if I died, he'd just write a play about it. Hamnet. Ba-dum. Um, <laughs> Do you find that to be a... that this is how Neil Gaiman is presenting Shakespeare, or do you find there's more or less or something else to him in this? I mean... I think... Okay, so there's a bit of a correction. Um, uh, he says... Mother, change, mother says he changed in the last five years, but I don't remember him any other way. Judith, she's my twin sister, she once joked that if I died, he'd just write a play about it. So technically it wasn't his mother that made the um, comment. Um, it was the twin sister um, who kind of um, late in the later issue seems to imply that she was, well, actually no, she just says it outright, that um, she was jealous of the of Hamnet for being allowed to be near plays that, um, you know, if she'd had a chance, she would have loved it as opposed to Hamnet being like, eh, I wish my dad was a normal dad. Um, that actually cares about me as a person and not me as a character in his life. Um, so, but you know, that does end up being true. So um, even if, like, a cool joke made out of jealousy ends up being true, that's, yeah, that's not a good um, statement for a, a 
character as a person, just their personality. I think I was saying, is that an accurate view of the way that Shakespeare presented in here? So I oh, think yeah. that yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. yes. I remember, and it, it does link into what uh, Dream himself says. Well, let me find it. Uh, ah, yes. So the Dream says, but he did not understand the price. Mortals never do. They only see the prize, their heart's desire, their dream, but the price of getting what you want is getting what you once wanted. Yeah, so that, the idea is that Shakespeare, he wants to become a great writer, but he didn't understand that this would put him at a remove from the world, that he would see the entire world as material rather than as something that he can actually live within directly. And by the next issue, he is just quite weary about the world. And this issue, actually, you, you, there's at the beginning, there's that uh, lovely series of panels or effective series of panels yeah all of these panels are just generally well constructed um and which you know if if you're gonna win a prize for you know fantasy writing and just generally be revered for being one of the you know top 10 or top 20 visual <sighs> graphic novels um ever written like yeah no of course the panelings are great um, like he's saying, hold fast. We st so this they've just arrived at the area, and he's saying, hold fast. Stop here, my friends. Hamnet, go and wait with Condal and the other boys. And his son Hamnet says, but father. But then Shakespeare just walks away, and in the foreground of this image, you just see Hamnet's rather displeased face. So already at this stage. William Shakespeare, he is losing connection with the world around him. Yeah, um, and I only just noticed now, and I'm pretty sure that's a deliberate choice. Um, in page, I don't know, page one, two, three, four, five. Um, well, at the end of page four, um, uh, do, 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 do. Um, Dream says, hey, Wendell, open your door to the Fae. Um, and then like this outline in the grass of a person with a door in, in within a square that turns out to be a door, like opens it. And that's, you can see it in the first page, just under June, the this little panel that says June 23rd, 1593. And there's a bit of a hill and the dude's right there. Oh, Oh, and I'm just noticing that. So, yes, this is... I will admit that, you know, I heard this is the one that won the World Fantasy Award, and then I read it and I thought, oh, that's sort of clever. It's only reading it this time that I find that, oh, there's actually something more than the clever concept here. Yeah, and then, like, you see the foot of the dude in, like, page, like, four, when... um. The dude's like, hey, but um, one of um, Shakespeare's friends is like, hey, you do need to pay us. Um, as, or, you know, we could have given you a stage, a proper stage. Um, and he's, and then uh, Shakespeare, uh, Dream is like, I have no doubts of your ability, Master Burbage. Um, I have no hall, not that I will take you to, etc. 
So, and you can see the foot and the edge of the door there too. So there was a reason that they were all, they had to be there specifically. The door to the Fey realm was in that specific spot. There was nowhere else for them to like enter from. And I'm a little bit annoyed that I only just noticed that now. Um, I mean, I'm only just noticing it right now. <laughs> So yeah, shall we talk a bit about how, so like technically, one of the main characters is Shakespeare. However, in a broader sense, the title character, the Sandman, is also a main character. And I was only reading it this time that I sort of got, I sort of paid attention close enough to get the level of pathos and contradiction in him this time, because I think that the fundamental theme of him in this issue is that, you know, he is eternal, he is technically uh, an immortal, he lasts forever, but, and he technically knows that nothing lasts forever. However, he does want to try to fight against the inevitable way that the universe tries to kill things off. He wants to fight against the natural forgetting of the world. So in this one, he said, the, the fairies ask him, look, we, we appreciate this. We appreciate you bringing us here to sh see this story uh, dream. However, we have to ask, why are you showing us this? And dream basically just says, well, look, actually, let me find the quote. Uh, so he's saying that you have asked me why I asked you back to this plane to see this entertainment. I... During your stay on this earth, the fairy have afforded me much diversion and entertainment. Now you have left for your own haunts, and I would repay you all for the amusement and more. They shall not forget you. That was important to me, that King Oberon and Queen Titania will be remembered by mortals until this age is gone. To which Oberon says, We thank you, Lord Shaper, but this diversion, although pleasant, is not true. Things never happened thus, and Dream says, oh, but it is true. Things need not have happened to be true. Tales and dreams are the shadow truths that will endure when mere facts are dust and ashes and forgot. And then Titania says, if you say so, Dream Lord, we are honoured. And we have here, I feel that, you know, reading this once, that second thing where Dream says, oh, but truth, uh, no, tales and dreams are the shadow truths that will endure when mere facts are forgot. You know, the first time I read this, I thought, oh, yes, you know, writer patting himself on the back. Oh, we, we writers, we are the unacknowledged legislators of the world, as Percy Shelley said. But this time, it does feel a bit more complicated, or at least a bit more centred in Dream's character. That he is desperately sad that things are changing and things are ending. And he wants to believe that he can at least stop things changing that much or stop things passing away. That if he just finds someone to tell a story, that therefore, you know, people will, that people will remember these things that just keep changing around him. And I think we get a hint that maybe he's wrong about this, that even though Shakespeare has lasted for 400 years, maybe this will all go bad again, because I think it is... Find another part? I, I don't need to find the exact words, but Titania says, I remember this story. A, a young boy in ancient Greece with a liar told it before, and I think that's meant to be Orpheus she's talking about, who's another character in this series. So... 
Apparently Orpheus told this story once before. No one knows that story. He is reviving this story right now. Dream is. So the possibility is left open that even his attempt to give the fairies immortality once again, to give a shadow truth immortality to them, that that story will also die. William Shakespeare's storytelling immortality will also die and Dream's desire to fight against the inevitable entropy of things will also fail. Yeah. Um, Although, um, that is definitely the case. And, but I feel like the fairies uh, don't quite get that. Or at least. um, Yes, I I would say that with with the fairies, I feel that part, they're sort of the foils to Dream. Like, Dream is a very somber, very serious person. The fairies are also very serious i mean the the king and queen however they're just sort of oh yes this is nice thank you this is a nice treat you're giving us but they don't take it very seriously this gift that dream is giving seems far more important to him than it does to them oh absolutely because um in an earlier page um that you've mentioned already where um the sandman's like hey so i gave him access to the dreaming and Shakespeare didn't really know what he was asking for, you know, but he did not understand the price. Mortals never do. He goes on to say, and had I told him, had he understood what then, it would have made no difference. Have I done right, Titania? Have I done right? Like, he's asking for reassurance. And she just goes, hmm? Oh, it is a wonderful play, Lord Traper. Most enchanting and fine. And and it's just like, oh, poor baby. He's not being heard. And it turned, and we also get the hint that just by bringing her here, he is making William Shakespeare's life even worse. Uh, because, you know, in the 75th issue, we, we get another thing where it turns, you know, William Shakespeare says, what if you hadn't? asked me about this what if you hadn't given me this ability and you know the dream says i can take an educated guess you would have acted for a few years written a few plays that didn't get that much success then you would have moved back to the country made a few investments bought a coat of arms for your family and in your old age you will be regaling your children with your few years uh, on the london stage and then William Shakespeare says, and what about my son hamlet would he still no do not tell me i do not want to think about that But in this issue, we do get the hint that maybe this deal indirectly led to Hamnet's death or perhaps being spirited away by fairies. Because Titania here says, that child, the one who is playing the Indian boy, who is he? He is the son of Will Shakespeare, the author of this play. A beautiful child, most pleasant. Will I meet him? I have told Shakespeare to call an interval halfway through the play and you will meet him. Ah, it is uncommon for you. So, but basically the idea is that Titania is perhaps going to, just like how in the play, Titania steals the Indian boy. In this comic, the idea is that maybe Hamnet's death is actually Titania stealing him away. So that Dream has accidentally, or perhaps, you know, with willful disregard for the consequences, led to William Shakespeare's child being taken away from him. Yeah, it doesn't help that later Hamnet was like, 
oh, by the way, Dad, I saw a very pretty lady. And and Shakespeare's like, no, it's fine. Uh, it, yeah, sure, carry on. This is, go back to the play. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a, is, is it subtext or is it text? I know writers who use subtext and they are all cowards. Yeah, yeah, no, she, like, He's eating something when when the queen is talking to him, which you should never do in front of a fairy, to be honest. And she's being like, and bonny dragons that will come when you do call them and fly you through the honeyed and the skies. There is no night in my land, pretty boy, and it is forever summer's twilight. And it's just like, yeah, no, 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 no. He's gone. He's, he's, he's straight up kidnapped. There is no other explanation. Yes, and the, this, the very end, the ending captions of this issue are Hamnet Shakespeare died in 1596, aged 11. Robin Goodfellow's presence, where the present, Robin Goodfellow's whereabouts are unknown. So we get, it's, it's not stated directly what happened to uh, Hamnet, but uh, we, we do get hints that maybe this entire deal with the fairies or deal with dream had something to do with his loss or maybe it didn't but yeah um so going back to shakespeare a little bit um it's kind of funny to me that you you've already mentioned that um titania or titania depending on who who you ask um mentions that this is not an original story she recognizes it as one that was sung by a boy in old greece um which implies that you know shakespeare done did it again and um neil gaiman he found the one play that shakespeare actually wrote the plot of and he said no no i can't let you have even that nope yeah it's like this is uh too this fake story is too good for Shakespeare to have written. He's not a very... I mean, like, that is a fascinating um, take to have of Shakespeare, is that he's not very good at making original stories, but he is very good at putting... at making humans deliciously human. Yes, like if this is like an issue seventy-five, where he's having an argument with Ben Johnson, when you know Ben Johnson is saying, "Look, Shakespeare, you know what your problem is? You know how much better you could write if you just had some more life experience." Ah, but Ben, we have both had the same amount of life. It's like, no, no, I have met more people than you. To which William Shakespeare says, "Ah, yes, but you only need to understand what it is to be a person to write people." Yeah, and... Um... Uh, yeah, so to, to tie it more closely to your point where Ben Johnson is saying that, do you know why you're always stealing your plot, Shakespeare, rummaging through those old books, whereas I make mine up? It's because you have no life experience. <laughs> which is a very... Which is kind of like a very rude thing to say. Um... I mean, they're close friends. Yeah. He's, he said, Ben Johnson says... You, Will, you know I'm honest. When your plays are good, aren't I the first person to say so? And, um... Yeah, no, I didn't... And just, you know, nigging each other is a very British way of showing your friendship. 
But um, yeah, this idea of no Shakespeare's one original play is not his own, but the characters in them are, so to speak, is um a nice touch, and I quite like it. Um, and also the whole the framing device of fairies watching a play about fairies that has a play within a play, and also we are reading a story within a story. Um, there's a lot of layers, man, like an onion. And, um, and having the fae the being reflected to them by the play is a very human thing to give them to enjoy. Because, um, you know, plays and movies are usually, um, especially for reviewers of the narrow kind, um, it's like, I didn't see myself in it, so it wasn't fun. And it's like, well, sometimes it's not aimed at you, white boy. Um, I'm just thinking specifically about Red, the, the movie. Um, and, you know... Red is that is is Red that movie about the? I, I remember there was some movie called Red where Bruce Willis and a bunch of other over sixty action stars were in it. Is that what you're thinking about, or something else? No, I'm thinking of something entirely else. Um, it's um, about an Asian heritage girl wanting to go to a um, basically a boy band concert while she is cursed with quotation marks heavily implied. Um, Becoming a red panda. I remember this one. Yeah. Wasn't there that viral review where it says this children's cartoon did not confront 9-11 closely enough? Is that what happened? Okay, I, I don't know about that. I genuinely like, this, is set, this is set in 2001 and yet no one, no one is mentioning 9-11. <laughs> um, I think it was also meant to be set in Canada, so it doesn't really... It doesn't really matter what it doesn't really matter to the Canadians about the 9/11 but anyway um but it, that review is um relevant to my point in that it misses the point of the movie entirely like it's about you know a girl in Canada who's of Asian descent and is is having puberty problems and um a white boy going this i don't get it because it i don't see myself in it and it's like well no duh boy i mean it's to tie it a bit, to tie it you know into a different aspect of that discourse it's like yes the, the, these fairies are seeing themselves however they are they are saying hang on this is nothing like us this is it's like it, it's like you know uh you know, a middle-aged white guy writing something about a teenage Asian girl. So it's like these fairies are saying, okay, this human is writing about us. This isn't us. This is nothing like us. And, it, you know, there's there's a running joke where there are three members of the audience who are saying, hang on, is that meant to be us up there? I thought this was a feast. I thought we were going to eat these people. And, you know, even Titania is saying, as they go, yes, this is very nice, very entertaining, but, you know, these people, these fairies, they're not having that, you know, when, you know, nowadays with the representation discourse, people say, oh, yes, finally, I see myself on the screen. I can connect 
with what I am seeing. The fairies in this, at best, they viewed as a bit of entertainment, but they are saying this is separate from our lives. This is a human being making us sanitized and making us a bit more, uh, well, it's not us, really. Yeah, although one of them is really enjoying it. Um, so we, there's a, the scene where um, Please bo- Blossom, um, ble- where's Please Blossom? Ready, scratch my head, Please Blossom. And then um, the actual real Peas Blossom is like, did you hear that? Peas Blossom, that's meant to be me, that is. It's nothing like me, nothing. It isn't you, Peas Blossom, now be quiet. Yeah, you shut your face, Peas. Issa, what's the name? Travelog? Nah, travesty, that's it. I'm the only Peas Blossom among the fae. Scratch his head, I'll give him Scratch's bleeding head. Peas Blossom. <laughs> like I said, I'm not having you spoiling it for everyone. It's so cute. It's so cute. That's a that is a classic, you know, interaction between like a certain series of people in front of a TV and one person, usually of the older old generation, going like, "Why is why is that doing that?" And it's just like, please, just watch the movie. And and, and it's it's like the, the big, you know, ironically, it's the big sort of dim-witted-looking guy who's the guy who can actually follow the narrative. And he's saying, oh, go on, don't you ever pay attention? Just just let me explain. The story is all very simple. Just watch it. <laughs> oh, and there's a cute little one that says, all right, what's so funny about having a donkey's head? Hey, hey, go on, tell me what's so funny. <laughs> And then he goes on to say, well, actually, humans are delicious, but don't avoid the men because they're hairy. And like, well, you shut up. Human males open. taste more like rabbit than the females, and they stick in your teeth. <laughs> uh, and, the, oh. and the joke at the end is that the Oberon pays them with gold, but then it turns out this gold, just like the entire thing, has all been a dream, and the gold becomes lots of daffodil petals. Yep. And, um... I don't know how I feel about that part. I mean, just, I wish it was, like, fool's gold, just a bag of fool's gold and still flowers, because I feel like that would have been a little bit more, like, on the nose with the symbolism. But also, I think the flowers just are just cute also. Um, but yeah, like the whole, the fairies enjoying a play about themselves and some are vibing with it. Some are not, some are seeing themselves reflected in like warped images. Um, and how enjoying a play is kind of a very human thing to be doing, um, has made me go, okay, yeah, like night and not a midsummer night's dream is just not my cup of tea because maybe because i don't see myself reflected in it or um i just think it's you haven't had to choose between marriage forced by your father and going to a nunnery sophie (laughs) thankfully no I, i i hope not many people have but i think there are people you haven't been an amazonian war bride no, 
But I'm sure there have been teenagers who've had friends that are just more popular with the opposite sex and they're feeling sad about it and or having a friend or having a crush who is not interested in them, but they are actually interested in their potent, like in their more attractive per, um, best friend, even if they are, you know, apples to oranges, you can't compare the two beauties. They're very different. So um, this really does feel like, you know, this happened to a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise you, if that had happened to me, I would be telling you about it. I have such good life stories that are very funny, but it, this, this one does not apply. The Sandman, issue 75, The Tempest, written by Neil Gaiman and, as he notes, with additional material by William Shakespeare. Isn't that nice of William Shakespeare to give a bit of a contribution to this, don't you think, Sophie? Yeah, it's not as if it's not basically fan fiction. <laughs> I say that with scorn, and yet I don't actually think, think it with scorn. Although, I don't... Additional material by William Shakespeare. I mean, I, mm, that's a weird way of phrasing it. It's like on Re the Requiem of the Rose King Wikipedia page. It has the writers down as whoever the Japanese mangaka is. And then it says William Shakespeare. As though William Shakespeare had any level of consent in this work. Yeah... But anyway, issue 75, this is the final issue of The Sandman, and it takes place near William Shakespeare's retirement. He is at the end of his career, and he is finally just getting tired of writing and of his artistic creation, and at the remove, it puts him from his family and the world around him. And he is using this last play, this last play that he has been commissioned to write by the Lord of Dreams. He wants to get it over and done with, and then he will finally be free of this blessing and curse of artistic creativity. And the most of this is him trying to figure out how to get the ending down. The ending of The Tempest being about a wizard that we know, a wizard who throws away his magical powers and retires to his own home. Oh, how fitting, how fitting to Shakespeare's life. And we have a heartfelt and deep conversation with Dream at the very end of it. Did I miss anything, Sophie? I mean, I did miss a lot of things, but that is the central current of this tale. Yeah, no, that is definitely the case. Any initial thoughts about this? Um, the initial thought is, oddly, I was like, this is long. And um, I didn't really feel that way about the Tempest issue. Um, but I guess being issue 75, the last issue of the Sandman series, it being a long goodbye makes sense and is in fact appropriate um 
not just to Shakespeare, but to the character that is Dream and also to the readers saying thank you for reading all 75 issues of The Sandman. Good day to you. Um, That's all, folks, says Dream as the panel slowly shrinks around him. That is um, horrifying and I hate it. I, uh, you mean that doesn't happen in the Netflix show? The Patton Oswald character doesn't just at the very end go, that's all, folks. He doesn't start porky-pigging it everywhere. No! No! Awful. Terrible. No good. Bad. Uh, but yeah, the, my initial thing was like, it's so long and it's, um, and it's all a goodbye. And um, um, it, it, this is and also an interesting framing device in the sense that I feel like um, Neil Gaiman is basically saying this actually the last final play written by William Shakespeare is actually an original story, even if it is, even if, um, even if uh, he does say, I ripped it from the headlines, it's a topical story about a shipwreck and I stole a plot from somewhere. Yeah. But, um, he says, oh no, it's just a fairy tale about, you know, a lovely princess, um, being married off to a, to a happy young man. Um, and when- at the very end, he also, we have this sort of poignant moment at the very end where he's had his final conversation with Dream where he said, why, why did you give me this? I know you gave me this, but tell me why you gave me this. And Dream gives his explanation. But at the very end, he wakes up and he says, it's gone. The burden of words is gone. I can lay it down now and let it rest. And then he says, you left me the epilogue to write, my pale friend, and to write it with no magic but my own words. Very well. Now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have is mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true I must be here, confined by you, or sent to Naples. So we have at the ending, he's saying, okay, just like Prospero in The Tempest, I am giving up my magical arts, and these final words are my own, and these are the truest words I've ever written, because they are purely and totally my own. And even the elements um, within the play are technically all his as well. Um, uh, I don't like that scene, but there's a mention of um, a dead Indian and how people would pay, you know, money to see, just to see a corpse. Um, William talks to a pastor or we were a church person going, Hey, by the way, just in case, uh, a person sells their soul temporarily, um, for magical powers. Um, how do you think they'll do in the afterlife? And the priest is like, Oh no, they are not going to heaven. They are going straight to the downstairs. Why? And Shakespeare, William's like, no, 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 this has absolutely nothing to do with me sweating. Um, this is it's, 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 I'm doing research. I'm doing research. That's why I'm Googling how to dissolve a body. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just, you know, my character, wizard, um, what should he do if he wants to be safe uh, for heaven? And he's like, oh, just throw the books away and um, renounce their powers. It's like, okay, cool, 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 cool. Problem solved, problem solved. Um, and the 
the prince or the princely character in the play, he has to chop up logs, um, basically do hard labor to be worthy of the young maiden, um, just as he wishes um, the the creepy young lad um, after his daughter Judith um, would work to be worthy of um, his own daughter. And there's just gen at least in this issue, there is generally a lot more emphasis on Shakespeare basically putting the his daily life into the play, creating it in his own image instead of just ripping older stories off. With all that, I, I find that uh, Neil Gaiman... He is drawing on the popular mythology of The Tempest being Shakespeare's retirement play. Uh, it was a popular belief that this was the last play Shakespeare ever wrote and he retired with this. And so it is a conscious attempt of him of him being Prospero and him retiring from writing plays. Now, Neil Gaiman, he is using that mythology, but he also knows that that isn't true. He also knows that there are members of his audience who might complain at him because they know that this is not how it actually uh, worked. And so we have at the very end, after, you know, Shakespeare saying, ah, the I have lost, you know, Shakespeare, he has thrown off dreams magic, and he is finally having this ending thing where he writes, finishes writing this play, which has the most part of himself in it. But then there's a final caption, which is just acting as a little asterisk, annotating it, saying, actually, this isn't true, where it says... Uh, he wrote nothing more alone after the tempest. So that that last part is just saying, look, you know, stop, don't don't write me any letters. I know this isn't true. This is uh, I'm just taking this, taking the mythology of this moment and running with it. I, I mean, just to me person, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I am the sort of person who's irritated by using that mythology. However, I do feel that that caption sort of undermines the emotional thrust of this entire issue which does sort of depend on him retiring at this point well i think um like i get it and especially if you're the kind of person that cares about that detail like it is an annoying um asterisk or a loophole i guess it's like well he didn't write anything alone he wrote other things um with i know marlowe's dead by now um yeah, Fletch, john fletcher he wrote uh, the two noble kinsmen with john fletcher right and um, i think he wrote pericles with a person who i, I at least one of shakespeare's co-writers was a wife beater so uh, there's that i mean a be above and beyond the norm a wife oh. beater above and beyond the norm of the elizabethan era oh no that that ooh, oh no and maybe that is a little bit important to, um, like, the mythology because again, it's it's a technicality, it's a loophole. Like, um, he's not technically lying, even if he isn't technically telling the truth. Um, but you know, the whole mythology is a bit of a theme of its own in, especially in Sandman, and especially reflected um, in the previous um 
issue that we talked about, and arguably in the issue that we're talking about now as well. Um, earlier in the play, earlier in issue 75, um, William is talking with his Catholic friend. Um, ben Johnson? Yes. And Ben Johnson, at least this Ben Johnson's like, hey, um, yeah, I turned that guy in, that guy, Guy Fawkes. Um, I just want people to know that not all the Catholics are rotten bastards. <laughs> And um, and um, they, in theory, make a very popular um, doggerel on the spot. Remember, remember. I, I was almost a bit yes. Yeah, so with, with this, this does feel like that sort of you know Assassin's Creed style of historical fiction, where you know it's like this story will somehow uh, intersect with all the famous things from that period. And actually, these characters are responsible for the famous things of that period, such as the Remember, Remember, the 5th of November, the Gunpowder Treason and Plot. You know, it was actually Shakespeare and Ben Jonson who gave us that limerick. Exactly. And there's no way to prove it, and there's technically no way to dis... And there's absolutely no way of disproving it, because theories are harder to disprove than prove. Um, and to be honest, in this one, the mythology of that is far more charming than, eh, who knows, it just showed up. Um, it is self-indulgent, but it's still more romantic. And having a indulgent, having an indulgent romantic, um, way of looking at Shakespeare is kind of Shakespearean anyway. Yeah, Shakespeare's later works got more and more, I won't say sentimental, but sentimental in a good way. Mm. And um, so, yeah, <laughs> at the end going, Shakespeare wrote nothing alone. Definitely a bit cheeky technicality, but I think it's on theme and therefore acceptable. He draws attention to the myth by showing that it is not true, thereby right. making us, uh, by, thereby, you know, it's multiple levels of interpretation. <laughs> Telling us that, oh, you thought this, but let me show you that I knew what you were thinking. Therefore, let me actually prompt you to think just a tiny bit deeper about what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, also, this was released in, what, 1992? It says, well, it's, I, I'm reading oh, the, uh, at the very bottom, it says, Neil Game in October 1987 to January 1996. So I assume that this is when this came out. Yeah, and um, 1996 internet didn't really exist what about for a young hip writer like neil gaiman surely he was on the interwebs probably but you got it's just like there was no one there was no audience at the time that could widespreadly check how true this is and then you know write at um Gaiman and or I mean, they do have them. they do have letters columns, and there are books available in the world. I mean, so. yeah, but like, I feel like the vitriol of, um, you know, not strictly speaking, plot hole, 
but like a, you know technical accuracy is not as like stringent or am I just you know romanticizing the past where you could just say things and you wouldn't have to be like overly cautious about the consequences from there are pedants in every era I remember there was maybe this is apocryphal but I remember a story about Charles Babbage the one of the you know a Victorian era proto computer hardware inventor and he wrote a letter to Alfred Lord Tennyson taking issue with the line, every moment dies a man, every moment a man is born. He wrote a letter to him saying that, actually, the if this were true, the population of the Earth would be at a standstill. In truth, the rate of birth is in slight excess of the rate of death. So the better line would be, every moment a man is born, every moment one and one sixteenth of a man is born. This actual number is not precise. However, I believe it is precise enough for poetry. So there have been people like that in all these. Uh, I hate that. I hate so that. So long map. as the postal system exists, there will be someone willing to tell you you are wrong. Pedants. Pedants. I hate you. Pedants. Anyway. I would like to, you know, just... In this one, I do feel that they're portraying Anne Hathaway and Shakespeare as being far older than she should. Like, she was older than Shakespeare, but like only like seven years older than him. In this one, she looks ancient. Yeah, she like, is that is it because like, does she look ancient because uh, we don't see much of her hair is or like do does she look ancient because you know people just had a harder life in the sun at at that era like how old is she meant to be she's meant to be well if shakespeare in this one is late 40s then she can only be in her 50s but it's i i i'll put it like this it's less how old she looks and how old she looks relative to shakespeare because you know they're at the age where you know 7 years shouldn't make that much of a difference between them I don't know. Shakespeare looks pretty old, too. I, I suppose it's that... I suppose for me it is... it is. Uh, I mean, well, maybe it's just the colour in his hair that's making me think he looks, <laughs> think oh, he looks actually, younger. No, actually, you're, you're not wrong on that end. Yeah, the fact that she has a lot of pretty much entirely grey hair does age her more, but I'm just staring at the the, the wrinkle count, I guess on both uh, on both faces and like yeah i guess um she, in, in that sense she seems to have roughly the same as shakespeare but also she frowns a lot like she is portrayed as just generally unhappy tired of her husband's shenanigans um and she's like, yes yes go chop some wood for us darling because um she has that lovely line where, you know, Shakespeare says, I always thought of myself as a practical man. Oh, yes, yes, the practical man who runs away from his family to go and make a living in the city. Yeah, and... Um, ah, yes, of course you do so. Whereas <laughs> I consider myself a practical man. Of course you do, my dear. Practical men always desert their... Practical men always desert their wives and run away to make up pretty tales and write pretty sonnets to pretty girls and pretty boys. 
now and then. We we have one of the things about we've gestured towards it, but in both of these issues, you know, Neil Gaiman is interweaving lines from the plays in ways that are thematically resonant with whatever is happening in the story, where the where his wife has just told him practical men always desert their wives and run away to make up pretty tales and write pretty sonnets to pretty girls and pretty boys and then shakespeare writes down the, the famous caliban line you taught me language and my prophet aunt is i know how to curse the red plague rid you for learning me your language so his, his wife has just said, you know, you, you left us to do your art. And now Shakespeare is writing down, God damn you, Dream. Because of you, I just am disconnected from my life right now. Yeah. And um, this is very cute. Um, he's like, ha, huh, listen to this, my dear. Um, now in the play, Ferdinand, the young prince, and Miranda, the beauteous maiden, are given to each other after some wood chopping on Ferdinand's part by Prospero, the magician, and he summons his spirits to perform a mask for them. At the end of the mask, he jumps up, scatters the maskers, recollects the plots against him, then says to Ferdinand, Ahem, and just does the speech. It's very long. Um, While she is just having her eyes closed, plucking a duck. And even as he is so involved in it that we cut between Shakespeare and the face of Prospero himself and then back to Shakespeare and he says, there, is that not fine? And then she just says, oh, yes, yes, uh, I am pleased you mentioned wood chopping, Will, for wood chopping certainly needs a doing, else we shall freeze in our beds this night. Uh, and my speech? <laughs> for how you expect me to cook for you without firewood, I would not know. And you would be the first to complain were there no roasted goose nor no hot pudding. And then, you know, this could have been done as Shakespeare. The reaction shot is Shakespeare smiling, saying, yes, my dear. This could have been done like, oh, my, my, my nagging wife. Oh, damn you, woman. But no, in this one, he's saying, ah, oh, thanks for keeping me honest. Ah, oh, thank you for reminding me of the real world around me, the real family life that I soon will have. Yes, my dear. Just very very affectionate they are like um begrudgingly affectionate to each other because um earlier she is going your your daughter is 25 and she's still not married um what are we going to do about it and um he basically says well you could do, um, she could probably do for herself what you did, trap a boy. <laughs> and she's like, mm, well, that did happen, did He specifically it? says, why, to set a snare with her glance and bait it with her quant, that, which is uh, slang, Elizabethan slang for a lady's uh, pubenza or whatever that uh, formal name is. Uh, why, to set a snare with her glance and paint it with her quaint, then, when her belly swells, her poor silly swain will have no choice but to make an honest woman of her. Was that not what you did when you were six and twenty? And, you know, she, she looks at him with a, with a sly smile. And says, I, while, you know, stroking his chin with the back of her forefinger. And that's a really affectionate um, gesture to be making. Um, so, like... They do, in um, as Shakespeare says, sleep in separate beds, but they don't hate each other. 
it's it's re- it, another part of the Shakespeare mythology it's bringing on is that uh, the idea that he had an unhappy life with his wife. We don't really have much evidence either way for that, but that is part of the mythology, the famous story that in his will, he gave Anne, his wife, his, quote, second best bed. Which people have argued, what, what does that even mean? What does second best bed even mean? I only find... Um... Issue 18, more interesting as a comment on a Shakespearean text as opposed to this one. Like, and I can't quite put my finger on why. Um, what do you think? Like, which which one is more, not, okay, I won't go so far as say which one is more Shakespearean, but which one is more interesting? I... I, I will... The high concept of issue 19 I find to be stronger. But in this, I find that this one is a bit more moving, in a sense. This sense of an ending, in, in many senses. The sense of a career ending. The sense of the entire series ending. And in that final confrontation between Shakespeare and Dream, that, that, that final speech they have, or the final dialogue they have together, where... You know, uh, Shakespeare says, but why? Why are you doing this? Why? And Dream says, that is not your concern, Will. It's like, not my concern. I gave you 20 years. I wrote your plays. And if you opened the door, I still did the work. I put each word down. I made the actors talk. I gave your stories the forms in which they will be remembered. I have earned an answer to my question. Why? And Dream just says, because I will never leave my island. You live on an island. I am, in my fashion, an island. But that can change. All men can change. I am not a man. But, and I do not change. I asked you earlier if you saw yourself reflected in your tale. Yes, I do not. I may not. I am prince of stories, Will, but I have no story of my own. Nor shall I ever. But I thank you. Now, it's not spoiling too much to say that, you know, given that, obviously, this is the Sandman. The Sandman does have a story. And, you know, this is also a story where the main character changes over the course of it. I'm trying my best not to spoil what happens, but there is a level of dramatic irony that will hit the reader who has read the entire series, reading what Dream is saying now before all of his character development. So I find it is... It is moving, perhaps, maybe if you had done a complete reread of the series, this final part would have hit a bit harder. But I find that it does fit as a sense of an ending. Yeah, no, um, I, and I definitely agree. It is, as you say, this one is far more moving because of the textual context. And I guess that's why I find the previous one a more fascinating um shakespearean commentary text because it has as you say a stronger higher concept i do like the tempest as a play more though this is just a it's not even part of the point but <laughs> i i do i do like the the little illustrate—I mean, I say little illustrations. The the illustrations which are done to seem like those classic illustrations of Shakespeare, 
I, I also like, you know, when you read comic books, you can, you can tell when an illustrator is very proud of themselves because they'll write their signature on the page. And there's this one, you know, full page thing where you have a Prospero on top of a giant rock looking down and all the other characters were, and, you know, beautifully colored, this well-composed thing. And then on a rock, you just have the writer writing down, see Vess, 96. He's saying, yes, uh, the, the, the illustrator is saying, yes, I know I'm a genius. <laughs> but yeah, no, there are multiple illustrations um, of um, scenes of the Tempest in this that are just quite good. Um, it's, it's all, and it's, it's good as well because it is of a piece with the rest of the style of the piece. However, just the colouring makes it feel like a different world, sort of a softer kind of colour. Um, yeah, no. Um, and actually, the I would argue the, like, Ariel's descript, um, depiction as um, he is sealed in the canker of a tree um, and... And for thou wast a spirit too delicate to act, his earthly and... Okay, no, the problem with the... I hate the parts that actually have, like, Tempest lines in them because they are written, like... In the, cursive font, I think. The cursive font is so hard to read! The R's and the N's are practically the same. Infuriating. And they're, also, and they're sometimes smooshed together that I just can't tell the difference. It's very annoying. Very annoying. So yeah, reading reading it out loud is not is going to be beyond me. But um, there's a scene where um, Prospero is like, hey, Ariel, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. You got trapped in a tree because of, um, um, you know, Dwarf Man and his witch mom. Caliban, that's the word. Yeah, because you got trapped in a tree because of Cal Caliban and his witch mum. So yeah, maybe you should be grateful and do as you're told. Um, yeah, and so it's just generally, genuinely, a really beautifully drawn Ariel, even if he is, you know, in pain. Clearly, <laughs> you. That I mean, maybe the the illustrator did a full Shakespeare adaptation, but you, you do wish that he would have done a full Tempest or a full Shakespeare adaptation. It would have been so beautiful. But anyway, that was the Sandman issue seventy five. <laughs> That was Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, issues 19 and 75. Oh, well, final impression, Sophie. Do you think that was worth reading? I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, like, it's definitely easier to read than a fanfiction of a Shakespeare, um, despite the fact that it is absolutely a fanfiction of a Shakespeare um, within... A larger text. Um, when when famous writers do it, Sophie, it is called illusions. 
And I, I'd say that this is more like historical fiction rather than fan fiction because he doesn't really play around with the fictional aspects of it that much. Yeah, okay, that's true. That is definitely a, um, probably a correct take. Um, and it is um, fascinating to, like, see how certain, like, authors have certain feelings about William Shakespeare. Um, if there are more of this type in short form, I think it would be worth um, exploring again. Um, maybe not not Rose King. Maybe not Requiem of the Rose King. Oh, we're slowly... You mean we're not going to do ten volumes of that? Maybe, yeah, even if you can, like, blaze through it in an afternoon if you have, like, three hours, um, maybe let's not do that. We, we're going to have to. I feel like we're going to have to just because we've talked about that manga so many times now. Uh... I, I'm sure there are plenty of, you know, the thing about Shakespeare is that he's quite popular. And so, therefore, there's always going to be at least, you know, a few niblet-sized things that we can take a look at. Yeah, hopefully. This, and, yes, as I was saying, that my last final impressions of this is that, as I've said, even though I've read uh, The Sandman multiple times, it's always with a sense of obligation a sense of obligation that sets in at around issue 15 and everything after that point i'm just sort of ch chugging my way through without really digesting it so actually sitting down to digest issue 19 and issue 75 is sort of like reading it for the first time i i there's more heart in this more thematic depth in this than i had thought before uh and you know genuinely moving it's certain points the dream trying to in issue 19 the theme of dream trying to fight against the inevitable forgetting of everything in a way that we sense might also be not eternal and in issue 75 the the sense of an ending of that final confrontation where dramatic irony makes the reader know that everything that Dream is currently saying to William Shakespeare is not entirely true. Again, for spoiler reasons, I can't go into exactly how that is the case, but it, as a reader who knows the plot, I know what Dream is saying is not true in a specific way. Yeah, and as a person that has also read it, I, I agree with you. Um which is a funny thing to say, considering that uh, he is, in fact, the endless. But, um, yeah, no, this was um, a, fun a fun detour. But now that we've taken our detour off the beaten path, I am going to haul you right back into the straight and the narrow as we do King John. Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Pals. If you enjoyed this episode, we would greatly appreciate it. If you could recommend us to your friends, share us online, and write a review on iTunes.
It's the only way we can get more no. The closing, opening, and interstitial music is from a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, source from museopen.org. Thank you for listening.